Good morning, Bruce Point Church and those of you watching online. I'm so thankful to be able to give Clayton a well-deserved weekend off. Obviously, I'm not Clayton because I have hair, but I don't have the beard that he does. I make that joke every time I get up on this platform. It will never get old. Um, it might to you, but I'm not going to get old telling it. So, yeah, I'm going to keep telling it every time I get up on this stage. But listen, we're closing out. Jesus didn't say that. It's been three great weeks that Pastor Clayton's brought us of honesty, um, kind of challenging, if you want to think of it like that, challenging messages with lots of truth and power behind them. We discover things that Jesus didn't say about happiness and forgiveness, and it's been a blessing to be a part of it every week. And this week, obviously, we're talking about things he doesn't say, and you might be new to Richpoint, or you might be new to this sermon and you're joining us for the first time and you're like, why in the world is Michael getting up there to preach about things that Jesus didn't say? What's the point of that? Why can't we just focus on what God did say? Well, let me briefly explain that before we get into it. Listen, today we're talking about things that Jesus didn't say and we have been the last three weeks because if you've grown up in church or you have certain translations on your Bible, you'll notice in the New Testament that Jesus, when he speaks, it's in red text. Have you ever seen that, noticed that, right? Okay, so those words are profound. They have meaning and they have power behind them. But sometimes I think if we're being honest with ourselves, sometimes if we're reading and we're, we've got distractions or we've got things in our lives that are kind of drawing our attention away, we kind of skim over and we don't realize the importance of what Jesus actually said. So when we talk about in certain situations in Jesus' life, when we examine what he did say or what he did do in those situations and, and we think about what he didn't do, it makes what he did even more powerful. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But today, um, and today I'm believing that God, I'm believing in faith, that God has a word for you today, regardless if you're new on your Christian walk and your journey with faith and journey with Christ, or you've been in it for a long time, God has a word for you today. I'm believing and I'm expecting of that. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. We thank you so much. We're so undeserving of a Savior. We're so undeserving of the grace and the mercy and the love that you freely give us if, you call, if we call out your name, God. Just like the song says, I don't know how we could, there's nothing we could do to ever deserve it. There's nothing we could do to earn it. And yet you gave it to us freely. God, I pray that my words are not my words, but they are your words through me, a vessel, God, for your use. I'm just thankful to be up here, and I'm thankful for the people watching online and watching in this room, God. And they're a part of this service, and they're a part of the family of Christ, and they're part of the body of Christ. I just pray that people leave differently than when they came in, whether that's through word or song or anything that's been said today, God. I pray that their life is changed for you forever. It's in your name we pray collectively as we say amen. Amen. Yeah. So right off the bat, I want to ask a question. I like starting off with questions. They're, it's just funny. And you don't have to answer this aloud. You don't have to type on the comments on Facebook or wherever you're watching. You don't have to publicly say yes or no to this. But if you want to be honest with yourself, you can answer to yourself. How many, if I asked you this, how many of you struggle or have struggled with the feeling of guilt. I know I have. It's a real thing. And I'm not just talking about like 
sinful guilt, like you're guilty for whatever X, Y, Z sin. We can get to that in a little bit, but this can, this can be any kind of guilt. I'm talking about food guilt. It was Father's Day last week, as we know. Did anybody happen to come in this building and see the three trays of donuts? Okay, I woke up Sunday morning telling myself, not today, nah, no sweets today, not partaking in the eating of the donuts. And what did I do? I ate two by the time I left last week. You talk about food guilt, major food guilt. But it was Father's Day, so if you want to say something to me, get off my back. It was Father's Day. I can treat myself. I can have two donuts. Just joking. Maybe, hey, maybe it's, maybe it's this. You have, you're a parent, and you have parental guilt. And I'm not just talking to moms when I say this. This can be dads too, but maybe, just maybe, you're stuck in this awful state of comparing yourself to every other mom or dad that you follow in social media or in your own life, it can be in your own life, that you follow or you're associated with, maybe you're, you're experiencing parental guilt because you look and you compare yourself to those people who are doing so many great and wonderful things with their kids and you're just guilty because you don't get to have those moments as much as you would like to because you're working or you're, you're, you've got a nine-to-five job or you've got something going on in your life that has other time commitments or you're providing for your family but you don't get to have those moments. Or let's flip it. Maybe you're the one providing at the house. Maybe you're taking care of the home. You're taking care of the kids, and you're guilty because you can't financially support the home. That's a real thing. People, people feel that guilt. Maybe it's just in generally speaking, you're guilty about not helping. You're not helping others enough. Or maybe there was something in your life that has kind of sat down in your soul or in your spirit. And you're just like, man, that keeps coming into the forefront of my mind. What could I have done differently? What, 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 um, what thing did I not do that I should have done? And you just feel guilty about it. It can be small, big. How about now, if, if you think about it like this, maybe you are guilty because you were always the person who says yes to everything. You can't say no. You have that kind of heart but you are guilty because you're not giving yourself any time with your family, yourself, your friends, God. It's getting in the way of your time with God. You feel guilty on that end. Maybe spiritual guilt has got its hold on you today. Maybe it's, I'm not praying enough. I'm not giving enough. I'm not giving my time or my tithe enough. Oh, goodness. Woe is me. I have missed a day in the version reading app, and I've missed a day. My streak is back down to one. But what will I do? You start again. That's what you do. You start again. Just pick yourself up and start again. No big deal. Speaking of version, if you go to that app, if you have it on your phone, the Bible app, and you open it up, and you go to events, and you go to Ridge Point Church, right here, you can follow along with my sermon notes, scripture, make your own notes. Just make sure you save the event and save your notes. That way you have it for future studying. Maybe it's the kind of guilt that says, I love Jesus so much, but, you know, I, I sometimes take his name in vain. I'll be honest with you. Just going to be pure honesty for me today. I have done that before. I have a very bad habit of wanting to say, like, oh, my God, and I'm working hard to stop doing that. But, like, maybe that is just guilty. Maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is to me. Maybe it's that kind of guilt. Maybe you love your husband or your wife, your significant other, 
with every bit of your being like God's commanded. But you still have the guilt from looking at images out of lust that you shouldn't be doing. You just have that guilt and you're, you're, this morning it's taking a severe toll on you. I often feel guilt. I don't know about anybody else, but I talked about parental, but in terms of me being a father, that's where the guilt tends to hit me the most. I listened to a podcast earlier this week, and it was from one of my favorite pastors down in Texas. But he, uh, he had a great Father's Day message. And something that the Lord said to me just said, listen to this. And I'm not normally a podcast guy, but I listen to it anyway. I decided to give it a go, and I'm glad I did because... It reminded me, as fathers, as mothers, whatever the case may be, if you're a parent in any sort, grandparent, aunt, uncle, if you're the parental guardian of that child, I have felt guilt in my life when I haven't given enough attention or patience to my seven or my five-year-old who are just now getting to experience the world and some of the bad things of the world or they're just now getting into something for the first time and they don't know any better. And I'm just not patient enough. That's a real thing. I struggle with that because that podcast reminded me. It was just like, God's been so patient with you, Michael, for 25 years. Be patient with your five and seven-year-old and your three and your one-year-old. Sometimes I feel guilt in regards to how I'm doing spiritually on this stage, like in terms of standing over here and leading the team that I'm a part of or spiritually leading discussions and pouring into people with the media and the team that I'm responsible for with worship. I feel that guilt too. Listen, today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start at chapter 23, but let me just preface this before we get into the text. This particular chapter, this particular passage more so, has always got me. It's always tugged. It's pulled on those heartstrings. It's pulled on the emotional strings that I have. And I didn't even know, like when Clayton asked me last week that I would, if he asked me if I would do this sermon, I gladly said yes. He, 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 he does a lot for this church and we are so blessed with a pastor and his wife and his family that pour everything that they have into this church. I'm serious. You guys don't know just how many hours he spends doing the work of the Lord, and we're so thankful for him. But last week when he asked me to prepare for this, I didn't know this text would be in a part of the sermon. So I don't know if that was Jesus just kind of playing a good joke on me because God has a great sense of humor. But anyway... Chapter 23, we start with verse 32, and what we're about to read is Jesus' last few hours. And if you don't know the text, you would think maybe to yourself, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus on the earth, his last hours, if I told you last hours, maybe you would think that his last hours would be surrounded with servants doing whatever he needed, or he would be sitting on a throne or a really nice shiny gold crown. Well, I, you'd be wrong. Um, the text is actually going to show us that he did not have servants around him. He was, sur he was surrounded by two criminals. He had a crown of thorns. There was no crown of gold. And instead of a throne, it was a cross. If you don't care to put that up on the screen, verses 32, let's start. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull... They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. I want to throw some numbers at you this morning. Please stay with me because they're important. And I'll get back to that later in the sermon. But um, how many people total, answer aloud please, how many people including Jesus would have been hanging on a cross that day? Three. Thank you guys. 
So we need to understand, and I had a great discussion before this service with Lindsay, who done a great job this morning leading, about the details of the crucifixion. The um, understanding the context of the crucifixion. You know, sometimes, like I said earlier, we, we take for granted, I have before, we take for granted the power of the crucifixion, but even more so, we take for granted what the actual crucifixion meant and what that looked like. So understanding death by crucifixion, what that, what that means, it literally meant back then that it was the quite literal most antagonizing, harmful, painful, whatever you want to call it, way to die back in the day. Absolute, just awful, it's, we can't even comprehend it today if we tried, but the gravity and the sheer magnitude in this text that our Savior Jesus Christ found himself in is what we're going to talk about today. So they saved the sentencing for the worst. Okay, They saved crucifixion for the worst of the worst. These two criminals who were with Jesus, worst of the worst. And as um, excruciating painfully as it was, it was also publicly and spiritually shameful. Publicly because they stripped you naked before they hung you. So utter humiliation. They just didn't care. Spiritually shameful in regards because Scripture tells us that anything was hung to a cross or died on a tree, so to speak, died on a tree, you were cursed. You were thought to be cursed. Before they hung you on the cross, they whipped you. 39 lashes was the common number. 39 lashes. The whips had shards of glass and nail in them. It was not a fun time. It was, it was really terrible. And it created, in most cases, a sense of shock. And once um, the people, if they came out of that shock and they were actually able to gain an understanding of where they were or what had happened, they would make you and force you to carry, I'm sorry, I got away from the mic, they would force you to carry your own cross if you were able to do so. Once there, you know, a cross, obviously, that's vertical. To hold you up on that cross, they put seven-inch stakes through your hands and your feet to keep you there. You could spend days, most historians, most texts, traditionally, speak, traditionally speaking, it's, um, it's about four to five days is tops. Like on a good day, like the best case scenario, if you didn't die immediately on the cross, you could last up to four or five days. And in the process of that, you were doing this little number to try to get a breath. Like you were using your legs to get a breath. Okay, so after four or five days, Roman soldiers would, as an act of mercy, break your legs so you could no longer do that and you would just die by suffocation. And listen, I'm not saying all this today. I know it's 11.30 on a Sunday morning. You did not probably expect this part of a sermon today. I get that. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer on the mood. I just want us to understand, before we go any further, just how important that crucifixion process was because it just magnifies how great our Jesus is even more. Now, the two men beside Jesus, we're getting ready to read about them. You know, they weren't just um, sentenced to a cross because of petty theft. They weren't sentenced to a cross because of petty theft. They committed much more serious crimes. And Jesus, hanging in the middle of the two, is being spit on, slandered, mocked, probably called every name in the book at that point. And what does he do? He prays. He prays to his heavenly Father. But here's 
Number one, here's what he does not say in that prayer. He does not say, Father God, send your angels down with fire in their eyes. Show them my vengeance. Show them that they are going to spend eternity away from me because of these heinous acts against me. Nah, he didn't say that. Instead, let me tell you what he says. You probably know it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wouldn't have said that in that case. Come on. I mean, like, to think what Jesus Christ has just went through and he prays for their forgiveness. I just don't know what we ever did to deserve the amazing Jesus Christ and what we know of him. I just, there's nothing that we could do to ever deserve that, like the song said. I can't get over that song today because it has so much connection with this, with this message. Verse 39, if you don't care to put that on the screen, thank you so much. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell, began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. You want to talk about the embodiment of pride and arrogance and the, the, the selfish, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Simply put, he had no need for mercy or grace or a need for a savior who just happened to be right beside of him. He had no need for any of that. But let's look on what verses 40 and 41 say. Now, this is the other criminal. He's going to answer. He says, but the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you were undergoing the same punishment? We're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. All right, so at this point, if you don't care, I really like how this sounds. I don't know why, but saying this, I need some congregational participation. I don't know if it's just the amount of syllables or what, but those two words back to back, I, I just like saying that. <laughs> anyway, I need you guys to participate with me. I want to start a phrase... And I need you guys to say the second half of that phrase back to me, if you know it. Just say it aloud, okay? Here we go. What goes around? Thank you. Someone, someone said, comes around. I think said it a thousand times. I don't know who that was. That was funny. Your past will come back too. Thank you. If you make your bed, you got to sleep in it. Yeah, whatever. All those are ways to say you get what you Yup, deserve. So that being said, we're going to look again at what the second criminal would say. Verse 41, we've already read it. We'll read it again. We're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Here's 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here's another thing that Jesus never said. Nah. Not today, my friend. Listen, I had a really good sermon series called Sermon on the Mount. You should have been there. Listen, all your friends were there. I know you got the e-bot, your email. Yeah, they had email back then if you didn't know that. You know he got the memo. I know you got the memo, bro. You could have been here, but instead you were doing whatever you were doing. So today, I cannot extend that invitation of forgiveness to you. He didn't say that. He also is not telling us this. I can't forgive you, child of God, because last time Pastor Clayton preached, you were on your phone scrolling social media or playing some video game or 
whatever. I can't forgive you because that just dug you a little too far into a hole that I can't pull you out of. Nah, today I can't ask or I can't give you your request for forgiveness because that last time that you looked at pornography was the last time that done you in. I can't offer forgiveness today because that last time that you sinned and you cheated on your significant other was just too far of a hole for me to get you out of. Nah, not today, man. Maybe another time. Maybe another day, but not today. Jesus never said that. Let me make that abundantly clear. Allow me to tell you what he did say and who he's going to say it to. Jesus said this following to a criminal who could not do a single good work because quite literally he was bound by his hands and feet to a cross so he couldn't start a new life. There was no turning over a new leaf. He couldn't go and be the hands and feet of Jesus if he wanted to. He couldn't go to a church. He couldn't start praying at a church with people and have community and he couldn't join a life group or a church group or whatever that church would be calling it. He couldn't do any of that because he was stuck. He was in the last moments of his life and there was no way for him to go and start making himself a better person and having better deeds and being part of Christ-building kingdom and Christ-building relationships. He couldn't do any of that. But Jesus looks at this man. He's sinful. He's, he's broken. But he's repentant. He's repentant. That's the biggest key of this verse. He's repentant. This is what he says, verse 43. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. There's nothing. He's telling this criminal, pretty much, your sins are forgiven. There's nothing you could have done to earn it. You didn't deserve it, but the Savior says to him, I'll show you grace and you will be with me in paradise. That's not fair. Wait a minute, Michael. Stop the train. Stop talking. Just put the mic down. I need to tell you something. That's not fair. That's not how the justice system really works. Come on. Well, guess what? Let me tell you something I didn't deserve. I don't deserve to be on this platform today talking to you guys. I don't deserve to have this microphone in my hand and bringing you the Word of God. Thankfully, thank you, Jesus, that I'm able to do it. But I'm not, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to hopefully be teaching you something today that you might have not heard before. Or you might be hitting you in a new way this morning. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve every week, week in and week out, to be with my team who I love like family and serve with them and encourage them and serve with the media team and serve with, your, with the teams who are probably watching your kids right now who welcomed you in, made your cup of coffee or had it ready for you or your snack. I don't deserve to serve with those teams. I don't deserve to tell my worship team week in and week out, I'm so thankful to be serving with you. They probably get sick of me telling them and hearing that I'm thankful to serve with them. But guess what? I'm never going to be tired of telling them because they are so great I don't deserve my beautiful wife in this front row or the four kids I have spread out across four different rooms this morning. I don't. I really don't. I don't deserve any of it because my sin should have kept me in the trenches, but God, in His mercy, reached out and pulled me out. He pulled me out. If it was up to me, if you had asked me 10 years ago, at the age of 15, where would I be in 10 years Right now, 25-year-old Michael, I'd probably be addicted to alcohol or pornography. 
because I struggled with it when I was a teenager, that temptation, let me just be honest with you. If, if God hadn't sent me my beautiful wife 10 years ago, I couldn't imagine what my life would look like. And for any young person or maybe a young adult, or maybe you're even an, an adult, let me tell you just this real quick. This isn't part of my sermon. Christianity has made, has done a weird thing. They've made people who have a pornography addiction or they have an addiction to pornography or they have temptations with pornography feel outcast. We have somehow made it a religious thing where pornography has this pedestal that it's so much greater than every other sin that could be possibly committed, but Jesus is, it's a level playing field with Jesus, Okay? Pornography is not going to make you a worse Christian. It's not going to make you even further away from God, okay? I need to tell, someone needs to hear that. If you're online, God bless you. Listen, I will give you no judgment. You, I'm a person that you can talk to because, listen, I dealt with the temptation. And like I said, if it wasn't for my wife, I can't imagine where my addiction with pornography would have went. If my wife hadn't came along at the right time, I could not imagine how deep my life would have sunk into the pits of hell because of that. Someone needs to hear that. Listen, I, can, I will talk to you. I will prayerfully guide you as best as I can, as best I know how. Do not think for a second, young person, if you're in here, maybe you watch this later, that pornography sets you aside from every other Christian. It does not. There is grace and mercy in that sin just as much as there is in any other kind of addiction or sin in this world. I promise you that. I'm thankful for that grace and mercy. And let me tell you, just let me tell you, I'm thankful for Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm right. I don't need to apologize. I was in the right spot. Ephesians 2. I'm sorry. I got worked up, man. Right, let me just be honest. I felt a lot of, um, I'm sorry, Haley, for having you put that up. But I felt a lot of conviction this week, to be honest. Just be transparent as I can because I knew somebody may have thought in this room or would watch online later that pornography sets you in a different pathway or it's a different kind of temptation or it's a different kind of thing. Man, we don't talk about it enough. There is grace and mercy for you, friend. I promise you that. I promise. Verses 3 through 5, thank you so much for being patient with me in the back. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, thank you God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you were saved by grace. The text goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, for you were saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You couldn't do anything to get it or earn it. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no man, no one can boast. You didn't cause your forgiveness and you didn't do enough to ever get it. God gave it to you freely. If you have the faith and you are believing and you are fully repentant of that, God will meet you where you are. Guarantee it. We were dead in our sin and yet God, rich in that mercy, has come to not only make bad people good, but quite literally bringing dead people to life because he has thrown our sins to the farthest sea and you are not what your sins have made you out to be. God has given you a new creation in him. So he quite literally, quite literally has brought you from death to life if you accept that. That's the key today. 
How great is our God that we serve? Let's go back to the story of the criminals. Can you put yourself in the put yourself in the shoes? I'm sorry, of the criminal who repented to Jesus while he was on the cross. Can you imagine in that moment that you hear Jesus say the words that you're forgiven, come be with me in paradise, and that the very crimes that warranted you being on that cross have been cast so far as the eye can see. Think about it like this. If the soldiers had let that criminal down because he heard that, they, the soldiers might have heard that Jesus forgave them, and, oh, well, we can let him go. There's no, there's no reason for him to hang here anymore. You know, he would probably have a lot of wounds, a lot of physical wounds he would have to recover from and heal from. But guess what? He would in time. It might take several years, but he would. He would recover. He would have some years left restored to his life. I don't think there's any debate on that. And I know this didn't happen, but just play along with me. Just think about it. Do you not think that that criminal who was showed that mercy and showed that grace would spend every moment of his life trying to spread the good news and the gospel about the one who gave it all for him? He would be giving quite literally his all for the one that gave it all. He would have purpose. He would have intent. He would have a mission on his heart that he was going to tell every single soul he came into contact with about the goodness of Jesus. And I have seen the firsthand. I have seen firsthand the Holy One, the, the, the Savior of the world. I've seen firsthand. Let me tell you what he did for me. Here's what he can do for you. His story, that story of that criminal had gotten off that cross, that story would be my story too. And if you sense that it would be yours as well, or maybe you're in here and you've been saved for a while, and you just think about it for a moment, and you think about what Jesus did for you, that would probably be your story too. You would think to yourself, man, that, that sounds how I would want to live, to spread the good news of how Jesus quite literally brought me from death to life and saved me. And gave me paradise with him. I didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve any of that goodness that God freely gives us. But yet we're thankful and we accept that. When we call in the name of the Lord, he will meet you right where you are. It's a guarantee. It's in scripture. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for what God says in Psalms 103. We're going to start at verse 10. I'm sorry to move quickly. But I have a lot to get through. And I won't take up too much of your time. I promise. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. Thank God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. All right, let me ask you one more time. How many people were hanging on a cross that day? Can everyone... Participate. How many people were hanging on the cross? Thank you, babe. How many people? Three? So here's where the numbers I started talking about come into play. And I'll be honest, I, I don't have a theological degree. I didn't go to seminary. But there's resources and there's material out there and there's the Scripture and the Word of God that has allowed me to um, gain understanding with different parts of Scripture that I don't quite understand. And these numbers that I'm about to tell you in Scripture, Craig Groeschel had a really good way of putting this. It's just his. I'm kind of... I'm not going to give you the entirety of it, but just follow along with me as I try to do him justice in explaining these numbers. So 
First off, these have a point. Hear me out. The number one in Scripture, it always represents unity. The oneness of God. God complete. God himself. Four typically represents the earth. Five represents grace. Seven is the perfect number. That's God's number. Represents holiness. Six is one less than that number. That's the number of man, the number of the evil one, 666. Eight means new beginnings and so on. I could keep going. There's significance with the number 10 and the number 40. But three is the number I want to touch on. Three in Scripture, that represents wholeness. God is often represented in three natures. God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We as people are thought to be, we, we think of ourselves as body, soul, and spirit. Personally, I grew up in church, and I don't know, it's always stuck with me, but there was three qualities about God that always stuck with me. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. He's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. And he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. The book of Revelation reveals Jesus as the one who was, is, and is to come. I think that might be my favorite. The grace of God, it manifests itself in three different ways. There's justifying grace, sanctifying grace, and glorifying grace. The Old Testament, if we're talking about Scripture itself, has three patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've got Daniel, who prayed three times a day. Jonah was stuck in the belly of a well for three days. If we skip ahead, we go to the New Testament. Jesus was visited by wise men who bore three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. His public ministry from the time he was 30 up until his crucifixion lasted three years. There's a theme to this. Jesus was tempted by Satan three times in the desert. He knew Peter would deny him three times, and yet he showed grace and love and mercy three times before Peter would go on to preach at Pentecost. Jesus raised three people from the dead. Lazarus, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter. If we talk about the actual day of crucifixion, he fell, tradition tells us, his history and historians say that he fell three times while carrying the cross on his way to the skull. The sign over his head that said the king of Jews was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He uttered three words, three victorious words. It is finished. And from that point on, there was three hours of darkness that would cover the earth. We all know that on the third day, Jesus miraculously rose out of that grave. And if you're in Christ today and you're a part of the body of Christ, your sins can no longer be held against you and held over you and dangled in front of you. And if you've not yet accepted forgiveness for your sins, listen, there's never been a better time. If you're online, there's never been a better time to do that. I will stop everything I'm doing to pray with you if you'd like me to do that. I'm not kidding. Because I would rather have one person added to the kingdom of heaven when I get there than take up ten more minutes of your time. Time doesn't mean anything to, the, to God. It doesn't mean anything to God. Because we have work to do. Why should it affect us, our dinner plans? If someone's coming to Christ, that's the greatest joy that we can have, and we should celebrate that. We celebrate stories. If we, someone comes to this altar, they come to you and want to pray and ask for forgiveness, we should celebrate that with every bit of being in our lives and intent. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up. Thank you, guys. I'm going to close with a statement. And honestly, I wanted to, if you remember, last time I was up here, I was in, um, 
I was in the middle of the Greater Reward series back in April, and my sermon was um, going from the idea of trying into training. And this point I'm about to talk about, it, um, I wanted to use it for that, but I didn't know how to fit it in. I just love this statement. It's a lyric, actually. And I, I just felt as the week went on in my preparation back in April, God was just like, you've got to wait. You need to have some patience with me, Michael. This is probably not the time that you need to use it, so please wait and understand that there will be a time for you to use it. So I waited. I didn't know if it was because of my flesh or my worldly self was wanting to just use it because I liked it, but I'm glad I waited because he gave me something this week to add to it, and I'll talk about that in a second, but if this is the only thing, friend, that you've listened to all day, please listen to the next five minutes, and, and I'll be done. Here's the statement, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. The worst in us is succeeded by the best in Christ. I'll say it again. If you, if you didn't hear it, you, didn't, you don't understand it, I'll explain it. The worst in us is succeeded by the best of what Christ has to offer. The worst of humanity, humanity the worst of mankind all of the guilt and the shame and the sin that we carry, the worst of that is succeeded by the best in Christ. That's a phrase. I'm kind of paraphrasing it to fit the wording, but that lyric is a lyric in a song that I love. And it's stuck with me for half the year now. Well, all of year because it's June. But um, I wanted to dissect the word succeed in context to this because, you know, this, um, when it says the worst in us is succeeded by the best in him, I'm not talking about success that is earned on your own power or like it's, um, if you think about it, like it's happened over time. Like, oh, I was really successful in grad school or I had four really good years of college, got a degree. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about you're successful in your job. I don't mean that. I'm talking about succession that only our supernatural God can provide. Let me explain that in a second. There's two ways, Webster's Dictionary has two ways of defining succeeding. There's intransitive and there's transitive. Michael, I didn't come to be taught English. I didn't come to take part in English 101. Well, I know, but I'm not going to talk about the English Dictionary anymore. What does that mean, Michael? Intransitive and transitive. Bear with me for two more minutes. We say that succeeding when we talk about it in the intransitive term, it means it's not necessarily referring to a specific person or thing that caused the success. Like you succeeded for four years. You had success in college, but you had a lot of people on the way, man. You had a lot of people along the way and a lot of resources that helps you. You're successful in your job because of a lot of things that are put into place. That's intransitive. It doesn't directly apply to whatever's going on. But on the other hand, transitive, that means it follows in sequence immediately. It follows in sequence immediately because it was directly affected by something that shifted the course or the direction that that person or object had in their life. So when we say that succession is transitive, it means that we can pinpoint the exact time and the exact place that succession moved or that a course was altered. When we say that the worst of us, mankind, darkness and the humanity that is that, when we call upon the Lord and we ask that 
and we say the worst in us is succeeded by the best in Christ, it's immediate. It's an immediate transition because our lives have been changed. There's a course-altering shift that happens in your life when you call on the name of the Lord. It's transitive. It's transitive success. It's immediate. An immediate succession of Jesus' grace and His love and His mercy is there for you when you accept that. It's immediate. It doesn't take time. It doesn't take process. There's no process to it. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't, you couldn't work four years really hard at it. It's an immediate, transitive change in the course of your life. We have to understand the differences. This succession is not man-made. It's God purpose-filled and God-given. We couldn't do anything to deserve it or earn it like the song sang that we sung. But it's because He loves us. He wants that eternity spent with us in heaven. Every person, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of any line that you want to put, God would cross that line for you. I don't care about your political preference. I, just, I pr promise you, I don't care about your political preference. I don't care about your gender. I don't care what you have done in your life. God, Almighty God, will cross that line that you might have drawn in the sand because He loves you that much. He will cross that line to have eternity in paradise with you. That's the key. That's the thing. That's what I want you to take with you today. God loves you. If you have never experienced love, you will never experience love. Let me put it like that. You will never experience, if you're watching online, you're never going to experience a love in this world that would ever compare to what God's love is for you. Never. Not a person, not a place, not a thing. There's nothing that you could ever love that will ever hold a candle to what God loves you could go on and on about God's love. But when we ask for that and when God succeeds us with the best that He has to offer and we say the worst is succeeded by me, we're saying pretty much all this is my mess, God. This shame, this guilt, the worst of me, God arrives on the scene like that and He says, my child, you were redeemed in me. He says, let's just put this mess behind us. Find perfect peace in me. Come be with me. Spend some time with me so you can have a greater understanding about who I am and what I offer to you freely. You have purpose. Someone in here, you don't have a clue what you're doing or why you're here on this earth. You have a purpose. God has a purpose for you. It's to build the kingdom. It's to build the kingdom and win souls to heaven. That's what we're all designed to do. God designed us that way. If we're made in the image of God, then we are designed to bring glory to God. might be saying to yourself, Michael, let me throw three words at you myself. Let me throw three. If you want to use numbers, Michael, let me throw three things at you. I'm, I'm ashamed, I'm unlovable, and I'm guilty. How could God ever want me? God's got three words for you. God loves you, man. God loves you, and He doesn't care about the stuff that you've brought to Him today because He's going to cast it into the sea as far as the eye can see. He's going to get rid of it and toss it across the earth so it will not come back to haunt you and it will not follow you because you were a new child were brought from death to life in Him. Your sins and your transgressions can stay behind. You're a new creation in me. We love because He first loved us and, loved us, and that's our goal as a church. We love differently because God loves in spite of us, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our sin. 
He loved us first, so that's why we are so intent on loving you different because we don't care what you walk in there with, what you do on the weekends. If you are open and you are accepted to changing and you, for, you ask for forgiveness, God will meet you there and we will love you through it. I promise we will. There are so many people in this congregation who will love you through it. God will love you through it most of all. All you have to do is call on his name. Will you please pray with me? Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for the amazing love, the power that's in your words. We thank you today, God, that there has never been a time where you would not accept and you would not accept our sins and you would not accept us. And there has never been a time that you wouldn't just say, come to me, child, you're forgiven. You would never say that. And as we wrap this series up, let us remember that truth that you are there to meet us whenever we call on your name. God, I thank you for the forgiveness that you offer freely when we call on your name. I'm thankful for the love and the mercy and the grace that you give us every day that we don't deserve. What an honor it is to serve you, God, and what an honor and a blessing it is to be with people in Christ, God, in this room right now. I'm thankful for every one of their, um, I'm thankful for every one of their, the people here today. I'm thankful for every person that's sitting down or is watching online. I just can't, I can't express my gratitude and my thankfulness to you, God, for having them here because you do not operate on coincidence and you do not operate on circumstance. You knew that they would be here today. I thank you for their lives, God. God, we, 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 we're pleading right now, God, please, if there's people who have walked in here with baggage or if there's people who have walked in who have never heard you or they don't understand everything that the, what a Christian means what being a follower of Christ means and what having a relationship means, God, that they leave here differently because of you and only through you and only through your power and your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. We're going to sing just a little bit. Stand, sit, do whatever you want to. Be yourself. Be who you are. Be who God created you to be and worship with us as we sing this last little bit of reckless love again just as a reminder as we walk out today how great his love is. If you need to pray at the altar, it's completely fine free to do so. I will pray with you if you ask me. I will be happy. I'll be honored and privileged to do so.